Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. We hope you will engage with the wisdom of our tradition and our take on current events, as interpreted by the clergy, teachers, and guest lecturers of Central Synagogue. You can also access our weekly sermons by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to learn more about our congregation or watch our live stream services, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We are uh, spending this first night of Hanukkah with Michael Twitty. Uh, amazing culinary historian who's uh, with us tonight. Uh, we had a, a smaller first part of the evening where we, uh, 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 Michael's already blown our minds by changing uh, our sense of what a latke is and where it came from. And uh, I'm sure this conversation will be equally revelatory. We're standing at Sinai multiple times this evening. Um, I, uh, I want to make sure that all of you know that you're going to have a chance to write in questions uh, and we'll have make some time for Q&A at the very end of the evening. Uh, you'll see at the bottom of your screens, if you're with us on Zoom, a, a Q&A feature, and we hope that you'll use that um, as we uh, go through tonight. I know uh, uh, those of us who have read his book or read his blog or have had a chance to hear him in many interviews and settings uh, probably are chock full of questions that we would love to ask. And I'm in the lucky enough position that I get to ask most of mine, although I know we won't have time for all of them. Uh, Before I formally introduce you, Michael, I just want to say again, a huge, deep sense of gratitude for you uh, being with us tonight. Really, such an honor. Um, So for those of you who aren't familiar with Michael Twitty and his work, um, he's, as I said, a culinary historian, a food writer from the Washington, D.C. area, uh, he um, has appeared on many programs with many scholars and many leaders. He's lectured to over 450 groups. He served as a judge for the James Beard Awards and as a fellow with the Southern Foodways Alliance and TED. He was the first revolutionary in residence at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. He's coming to us tonight from Colonial Williamsburg. Um, and um, in addition, uh, he's been named, uh, Southern Living named him one of the 50 people changing the South and the root.com added him to their 100 most influential African Americans under 45. Apparently Beyonce beat him out as number one. Um, you know, it is, it is what it is, I guess. Right. It's what it is. Yeah. Uh, he also made the Jewish forwards list of most influential American Jews. Harper Collins released his book, the cooking gene in 2017. I have my very well-worn copy full of, um, full of uh, many underlines uh, and uh, will be the basis of a lot of my questions tonight. But it, if anyone is listening and they have not read this book, do yourself a favor, order it right now and start reading it, please, please. Uh, but this book traces his ancestry through food from Africa to America and from slavery to freedom. The Cooking Gene also uh, won uh, the 2018 James Beard Award for Best Writing, as well as Book of the Year, uh, which made uh, Michael the first Black author who was awarded such. So we are um, really uh, grateful to be in your presence and your wisdom and your Torah tonight. I don't know if you know this, but you are actually, uh, your Torah is connected to our community already. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Hmm. Explain. 
So I, I believe, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I believe that you were the eighth grade religious school teacher of Ben Feshback. Yes. <laughs> so I don't know if you know this, but Ben was a teacher in our LCLJ, in our religious school. So in, in a way, we are inherited of your Torah, man, you know? Wow. Very proud of him. Very, very proud of him. Always a very um, uh, stark, starker um, student. Very strong, strong young man. Yeah. And, uh, and so I know there are students in our community who have benefited from your Torah and your teaching. So it's, uh, uh, we're, you know, we're in lines of Torah here, which is an amazing thing. Fantastic. Uh, so I want to start, uh, with probably a general question that you, you've probably been asked, you know, multiple, multiple, multiple times, and maybe you're tired of answering, but I'm wondering for folks who, who haven't heard you or haven't read your book yet, um, how did you get started cooking these meals on plantations? What was the so- impact? for it. Yeah, the impetus for it actually goes back, winds back to my involvement as a religious school teacher. Um, I was teaching, um, uh, I taught across five or six uh, uh, synagogues with all of them different movements. Uh, Orthodox, modern Orthodox, um, Sephardic, uh, conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, and Jewish Renewal. And I taught uh, in the two Reform synagogues and the Conservative synagogue. I often taught seventh grade, which is the bane of many people's existence. Why I was gray hair? Yes, exactly right. They gave me each one of those white gray hairs in my head. I just had some really painful memories flash into my into my Look, mind. But, you know, if you know any, if y'all know anybody on the Nobel Peace Prize Committee. I'll let your boy for a seventh grade Hebrew school. But, you know, I taught about the Shoah and, and, and a lot of when I first started teaching it, the, the bigger the big problem was, you know, being in D.C. would go to the museum at the, you know, in the springtime, r- roughly around um, Holocaust Memorial Day. And we would go there that Sunday before I usually if, if we weren't already if we were back from East from um, Easter. <laughs> That's Maryland. Um, Pesach break. Spring, spring break. They don't call it. By the way, you can't call it. You can't. You have to call it by secular break because of some some weird people in 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 um, the state of Maryland who no longer wish to reference Pesach or Easter because they had to reference Ramadan. We'll talk about that later. That's just foolishness. But um, I taught about the show. I noticed that a lot of my students had either a very horror film or a video game version in their heads. They had no context. They they didn't understand how did Jews get to these places? Why were they there? So I, I, by the second year, I was like, we can't do this anymore. So I decided that before we would walk into the museum when you, you know, you get off the elevator and you're confronted with this map of these communities across um, from Russia into Europe and the very tip of North Africa onward. And so I, I told them, I said, you got to know which community you came from. That you can point to it on a map. Everybody in my group, in my class, has to be able to point to the map and show me where their ancestors came from. Well, I mean, that, I mean, whether you like to admit it or not, that definitely has a, that's rooted in my own experience as a Black person in America and, and, and the more stories we tell about ourselves. 
And when it came to food, we were reading this book by my now friend, Cara Da Silva. Um, it was an edit, edited version of a record left, and it was called In Memory's Kitchen. Because I wanted people to understand that the food and the traditions and the culinary part show that people had been in these areas for, for centuries, if not millennia. And um, that was so important to get give them a sense of, you know, these, these people had lives. They were individuals. They were families. They weren't just, it wasn't just a body count. You know, really have that empathy and that compassion for your own people and for all humanity when you walk into the United States Holocaust Museum. And it worked. But it was a point where I would just like, well, if this woman could write, could, could edit these collections of memories, where were the memories of our mothers and our fathers during enslavement? How do we bring those to life through food? And so I, so I had always been interested in museums and, his, and living history, which is not the same thing as reenactment, ladies and gentlemen. Reenactment people are crazy. Living history people are sane. There's a difference. Though in your book, you, you talk about yes. some meals with reenactors. Yes, and they're very different. I mean, they are... <laughs> They're, they're, it's, 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 it's not the same. It's, but I mean, they're not all horrible. I mean, they, we both play a role. I mean, who else would remember that part of American history if it wasn't, you know, in a, in a, in a way that was sensual and sensory. Right. And so I just started to, to really, uh, as I said, as I said, in some of the things I've written, have my own personal pace up in terms of just, Trying to understand, okay, the food is good. Where does the food come from? What are the what are the burns and scrapes and cuts that you get on the way to make that food happen? Um, what are the individual stories? As a, as a woman from um, Alexandria, Virginia, who grew tomatoes in her garden to buy her husband's freedom. Similarly, on the other side of Alexandria, in the the pen of the um, one of the slave dealers was a man who was literate who wrote a love note to his, what would have been his fiance. And I remember that he carved a ham bone into a ring. And I just thought, I've got to tell these people stories because they're my ancestors' stories. And I got to know my own ancestors as well. And so it was from, it was using that toolbox that I think that only that people who are truly aware of the intersectionality can do I said, well, there is a whole systems, there are whole systems of memory and preservation and resistance in Judaism. Um, and not just the Judaism, the, the Judaism, the prayer book, the Judaism lived, the lived Torah of the Jewish people, which is which is not always congruent with the laws and figures in the written Torah. But it's that that was just what inspired me, Rabbi. It was just the idea that I had to bring a never forget, um, always remember and move forward and see justice and, and compassion and equity for all people is why I started to interpret enslaved people's food. I, um, in reading the book so many times, uh, was struck by how um, resonant there were these themes that have become really um, uh, at the core of Central Synagogue, uh, when we were reshaping one of our teen curricula, we, we noticed that there is this quote that somebody, I don't know when, put at the top of all of our letterhead from Perkei Avot, uh, know where you came from to know where you're going. Mm-hmm. 
And that became sort of a grounding theme of our 10th grade. And it, you know, I, I got that, um, to that section where you list the, the proverb, uh, um, uh, it's no sin to go back and fetch what you've forgotten. Mm-hmm. And then in other places in the book, you say, um, um, uh, I had a responsibility to study the generations before me and to use that to move forward. And, and the need you said to kind of find a recipe for who you were. So, yeah, I said some stuff, didn't I? No, I mean, I, I mean, I was just, um, <laughs> I was reading this and reading this, and I was like, oh my goodness, it's like he, it's like you know, it's 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 um, it's so grounded in in our in our desire to to pass down a heritage and to have that inform where people move forward to. But I was also struck by the difference here, and you say you talk about it sort of being like uh, a vessel that's already been shattered, and you know, you're not going to get all the pieces back together, right? So, um, which, which is like, which is like um, in uh, Kabbalah, the Kunalam, contraction, right? Right, right. And so, uh, it sounds like this project then is 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 almost like a tikkun, right? You're you're creating a repair of what's been of what's been, uh, you know, I would say unjustly shattered in this case. Mm-hmm. It is. It's like, well, you know, and that's why when I first. Started to we first my agent and I first started to sell this book. I had an infamous situation with one particular well-known publisher, where there were three gatekeepers in the room. One of them was Puerto Rican and Jewish. One was um, all Ashkenazi Jewish, you know, straight to El Island, never left New York. And the other one was Egyptian and Muslim. And I got to tell you that. Um, I was told and at, at, you know, I was asked about what is this Jewish connection stuff about? And I thought I explained myself pretty, pretty, pretty well, but um, pretty good. Um, but they were just like, nah, not all of them in the room, but like, the, 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 the main person was like, nah, that's too weird. That's too muddy. That's too, that's muddy as the water is that whatever. But, you know, I, I love that when, when you respond to it, you understand there's this Venn diagram of both African wisdom and Jewish wisdom and that they're, they're in layers and they're also call and response to each other. And that's why I wasn't they, they were like, well, just kind of like weed out this Jewish stuff. And I'm like, no, we're not weeding out the Jewish stuff because that's because that's so that is that's the inauthenticity. Right. That's that's the bad part when we, we try to make, you know, f- you know, force and 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 falsify. An origin story. I mean, for God's sakes, uh, um, Rabbi David Schneer and I, you know, worked in a tzedakah garden. He he had me on his staff for a year. And I learned a lot about stuff. And I learned a lot about the ways, the forms that social justice and food can merge. And also looked at, you know, this idea of memory. And I don't know what how they thought that was weird or off or the, the, the worst line they gave me was America's not ready for you. And all I could think was, boo-boo, my America was here waiting, waving to you when you got the boat at Ellis Island. What are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? I, I just, I, it was my Sandy Koufax moment of telling them, nah, I'm not willing to do this. I mean, um, have my American dream. I'm so surprised by that line because the book, if anything, to me, felt almost like it it was writing people into the story, whether whether they were ready to be written in or not, but showing you you are in the story, whether you're aware of it uh, or whether you choose not to be aware of it. But you're, right. you're into this story. You are a part of this story. You, If you are 
you know, I, I guess, I guess uh, it's funny because people will just be like, why are you writing it? Why are you saying it? No, because if you're a white Southerner, Black people are part of your story. If you're American, period, Black people are part of your story, but especially those who we have, who we share DNA with, we share history with, culture with, we share food with for four centuries. I mean, sorry, nah. And, that's, and, that's, and I, I guess I'm not going to be the most political person tonight, but I just want to say this, that from an ethical standpoint for people that emphasize family values, why don't you want your family to vote? Why don't your family want your family to share the citizenship of this country with you? When you know damn well that's your family, you know that's why you share the same name, why you share the same eyes, why you have some of the same blood in your veins. What's, what, what's the problem? And that's why I emphasize that. I didn't, I wanted somebody to say that we don't just share the food in the table, we share the blood in our veins. And that goes both ways. I mean, the majority way, it's the European um, blood in us, but it's also the fact that about 25% of all white Southerners have African blood, African ancestry, and don't know it. So, you know, it is about, it's, it's about tikkun, it's about connection, but it's also about being able to see in a, in a bigger vision what it really means to be an American and have all these values, have a conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think we'll, we'll come back to a lot of those themes, uh, in the time we have, uh, I want to follow up with a, a question. Uh, you, you wrote also that, uh, we all cook with ghosts in the kitchen. Mm. Uh, and I can't remember if that was in the book or, or in one of the interviews I, I, I've, I've listened to, but that line, um, also just struck me. I, I think of the people who are the ghosts that I cook with. I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the ghosts who are in your kitchen and what, what's the power that they have. That's that's really um, you can tell how haunted this work is. Um, I had an article I wrote one time called "Dining from a Haunted Plate." That sounds really scary, right? But it's not meant to be scary. It's meant to remind us that um, if this existence that we have is is bigger than we know, it's not a one it's not a one stop shop. Then we have to realize the power of our ancestors. And it, keeping them going is a combination, not only of our own memory and our own storytelling, but our willingness to let them in. I mean, that's, I mean, this is the reason why every time we get up to pray, um, you know, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Sarah, our mother, and uh, of Rebecca, of Leah, um, of Rachel. You know, it. People need to remember that's 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 why it is. You're not only keeping them keeping them alive in the memory, but you're also allowing their their um their merit. And so, the same thing in the kitchen. I got to make this right because my grandmother did it, my mom did it, and my father did it, and my uncle did it, whoever, right? My aunt did it, and there's a story behind them, with them, of them. And it goes, and just as much a part of the ingredients as the food, you know, it's very different from cooking for the sake of technique or cooking because you want to impress somebody because you, you, you want to, you want that person to love you more. You want uh, so-and-so to get off your back or you want um, something to taste good. So you can win an award. No, this is cooking so that you can keep people alive. And so for me, 
Um, I'm, I discover new ghosts all the time <laughs> and they're very present. Um, you know, my, my, I lost my mom in 2014 and I lost my grandfather, um, in 2018 and, uh, so many other people, my, my maternal grandmother, when I was 30, oh, 30 some years ago. So, um, them and more so, I mean, these ancestors who were enslaved, you get a few details about their life, a few oral history details, and a few things you can cobble together. And that's it. And then the more you cook, knowing that they ate the same things, the more you learn about them. You know, it's very funny. I've had dreams where I have, when I when I came back from the mikvah, I had a very profound dream where um, it was really strange. I never have dreams like this where I, 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 was wa- I was running into a room and it was the yeshiva. And there were a bunch of people in the yeshiva and they were all different backgrounds or whatever. Um, and some of them look, look, looked the part, like they were coming from some Bible movie. It was really weird. And the, the person who was doing, who was davening stops and turns around. He looked at me and he says, where have you been? We've been waiting for you. And I've also had dreams when I've been on grounds of former plantations where I was in one building that was built in the 1790s and it was the, the old kitchen where it was expanded to be a bunkhouse. And I was the only person in there and it was not scary at all. I closed my eyes. I had a, I drifted into sleep. And when I was really, really, really in REM, I remember there was this moment where there was all this food and clapping and singing and and just, uh, just it was music, and and I had the same kind of message, like we're thank you for coming, we're so glad to have you. And um, both both of them, I woke up crying. I've never had dreams like that before or since. I woke up crying because I was just like, they were like, we've been so forgotten, and so you know nobody cares. And now you're here. Now everybody will know that we, we, we meant something. And so that, that goes in the kitchen with me. I mean, I am, that, I am that profound when I'm cooking with a purpose. Now, when I'm cooking otherwise, I'm, I'm not that profound. But that's that. <laughs> that sounds like it's a hard state to uh, live in constantly. So I can, I can appreciate how it's not, it's not always your cooking, but, but there are times when you are in that place. Uh, well, remember the Simpsons? And, yeah. And Homer walks into... Um, the quickie mart and he asked Apu, how is he doing? And Apu says, I was kept up last night with the howling of my ancestors. Yeah. 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 Totally. So, I mean, a piece of the book is, is, is also just the tremendous amount of research that goes in. I mean, it, it, it is, um, uh, I was struck by the, you know, uh, there, there, there are so many testimonials and witness, uh, documents, source documents from people who were able to see how this cooking took place or to, to see how things happened on these plantations and you're bringing these voices in. What, I mean, I assume that that's, I mean, are those, are those well-known, easily accessible voices? Are those things that you had to do a lot of digging to uncover? And um, what, what's it like to finally, I assume, because it's difficult, find someone who is speaking to the thing that you're hoping to bring to life and you find it? Well, it's different, it's different layers. One was that 
discover the story behind my great 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 grandfather Harry Townsend. And um, I'll just say this without going too deep on my, our, our personal family business ish service. There is always that that line of my family, my paternal grandfather's always had like a, a, a shadow over it, a call. And then to learn that his great grandfather, my great great grandfather, great sorry, great 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 grandfather, was um, a little boy sold away from his parents, well, his mother at least. I believe he was um, a mulatto. Was sold away to Richmond from North Carolina, from Warren County, North Carolina, which is on the Virginia border, several hours away to Richmond, and then bought. Uh, and I mean, it was a, it was a scholar of the Townsend plantations, and she had more information. She showed me all this information that she found the archive she had gathered. And I was just scrambling to find anything about whether my great 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 grandfather left any kind of uh, footprint, and she goes, "Well, I think this may be relevant to you, but I'm not sure." And in, in the book, it's the it's the it's the receipt for sale of Harry, Jim, and there's a there's a girl, a young woman, and they were bought by the Townsend brothers, younger brothers who would often travel to the Carolinas of Virginia to bring them more enslaved people. And then I find out that Harry ran away, but was returned for the sum of $5. And then I learned Harry's value when his slaveholder died. I mean, $1,300, something like that, $1,100, something like that. That was a lot of money. Um, And so being able to just even give sort of like points to his life, and then I found, then there was a friend of mine who was a genealogist who, um, if you, if this is how weird this stuff works. He had, in, he had invited me to talk to his family reunion in Warren County, North Carolina, about a year and a half before I found this stuff out. What I did know is that we are blood relatives, not through black people, which is interesting, but he's also black. He was inviting me to the grounds of the plantation where my great-great-great-grandfather was born and where we share lineage. I did not, I didn't know this until he ran our DNA and ran multiple relatives and was like, I told him, he's like, how do you know that this is this line? I told him, I said, trust me, you're going to be related to so-and-so because I know this is the right line and I was right. Um, so it's, it's that, but it's also the points where you can't like, you don't have that kind of fine detail where you have to like borrow. One of the most traumatic chapters I had to write was the part where I talk about how he and how my, on the other side of my, my mom's family, my mom's side, how they experienced the domestic slave trade. And I had to go to re- research people who had seen the Richmond slave market. And, um, I had to actually walk through that whole process mentally. It took me three days to write that, to write that whole situation because I was just shattered. You know, I, you know, it happens, but until you own it and walk through it, and I'm glad I did. And I'm glad that I did my own healing work afterwards because you have to, but you know, somebody might, on the bit, might be on this, in this meeting talking about, well, how does it do, what does it have to do with food? The Southern, we don't we don't remember that this our country cl- clung to the coast for a long time 
And it took a good half a century to move from that coast into the interior. And a good half a century after that to go to the other side of the ocean. And I'm not gonna even begin to talk about the traumas, the colonialism, the, the, the slavery, the manifest destiny, and other sins that, that that was a part of. But what it really boils down to is those people who were walked on foot from the Eastern seaboard into the deep South, carried with them recipes, ideas about ingredients, sustenance and subsistence. That meant that the, the diet was remarkably uniform and they carried their knowledge, skills and their abilities in food, which is today a multi-billion dollar industry in preparing Southern comfort food for people and beyond and gourmet food as well. I thought one of the really incredible moments, there's so many incredible moments in the book, but one of them is the way you describe on one of your trips going uh, back to Africa uh, with, I think you were bringing people with you, but um, you were in the kitchen and uh, you you held the utensil the right way because you had learned how to do that growing up in your home. And finally you got respect in that, in that, in that kitchen because they saw that you had at least had some of these customs passed down to you that you were mm -hmm. sort of in the know. Is that right? Yeah, we didn't. So growing up, we would never, if you were the big no-nos was putting the spoon in the pot, tasting it in the mouth and putting it back. Uh -uh. We didn't do that. But what my grandmother and mother would do was take it, put it on the back of their hand, like hot. I mean, even if it was boiling hot and lick, you know, then you wash your hand, you go back to business. And when they saw me do that in Ghana and Nigeria, they flipped out because it was, okay, you're a black American. You know, we, we get it that you come from here, blah, blah, blah. But when I did that, they knew that I had a mother who 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 had a mother. That was them. And they were very pleased that, you know, when that, and also when you go over there, the first thing you have to do is dance. There's no option. And they get you out there and it's not, and it's, and it's not performative. I would say that it's more like a test. Like if you're, if your body moves the right way, then you, you, and the thing, thing, thing about it is both with the tasting, with the dancing, there's this moment, everybody, the collective scream. And it's more, I don't know how to put it. It's more like, a, I don't know how to say it. It's like, ah, and everybody goes in there. And, and, and I mean, and the drumming gets more intense and everybody like lunges towards you to hug you, to put a hand on you, because now you, you, you are, you are one of us. Okay. We get it. Yes. You are truly us. So, so much, I mean, you know, in the layers of identity that you share in this book, you have uh, several that are so informed by diaspora mm -hmm. and, uh, living away from a homeland. Uh, I mean, how does that, how does that impact you? How does that um, shape you? Well, it's, I learned a lot from, I learned a lot from Jewish peoplehood. I think, I think one of the things that make, makes me, makes people angriest at me when they don't like what I do is the fact that I do have a vocabulary that's more expansive than they expect. When I say vocabulary, I don't just mean like words. I mean the terminology. Um, I spent a lot of time very much in love with studying um, Eastern European Jewish folk culture and also Sephardic folk culture. And the idea that what happened in the ghetto in the Malat was so 
formative. I mean, I, I, I always loved the ways that people tied their diaspora, their exile to the home. I mean, Sukkot does not look the same in Poland than it does in, in Eastern North America, it does in Israel. You know, it's just not, you know, but how do you make it in your mind, in your mind, how do you make the world around you look like the home you've been dreaming and talking and praying about? How do you make the plate suggest that? Um, you know, how do chickpeas get to get to Poland and someone says, oh yeah, roasted chickpeas, this is, this is, this is, you know, a little, little smattering of that Middle Eastern heritage, right? That fascinates me. And now I, I, I look at, you know, there's this tension, you know, especially in Ashkenazi Jewish culture and African-American culture, especially that rooted in the South, going out of the South, this tension between um, the, the, the idealization of the ancient homeland, the, the uh, relishing one's contemporary freedom. You know, I don't, I'm not tied to, I don't have to be tied to that if I don't want to be tied to that. The shame, the shame of victimization. You know, why didn't we fight back? Why didn't we just rather all of us die rather than deal with this nonsense? The same conversation is to be had. And also about food, you know. So here's, here's how it goes. Soul food is unhealthy and everything's fried. This is not, it's not. And it's all this. Now, soul food is actually from the ground, from produce, from people living on black land that was owned by black people, you know, that that lost it through guile and the government's nonsense. So my, that's what my grandfather fought, fought against. He was one of the founders of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. He was a civil rights and, and food activist before there was a name for a thing. Lived to be 99 years old. But I digress. The fact of the matter is, there's a lot of na there's a lot of naysaying. Ashkenazi food, oh, it's boring, it's bland, it's poor people's food. Why would you want to eat that? It's not as good as the Israeli food or Sephardic food or whatever. It's just gray and brown and <laughs> it's tenement food. That's ghetto food. Well, that's plantation food. That's slave food. You don't know what the hell slave food was. You know, the food of the enslaved when they were, at, the situation was at their worst was horrific. Nobody eats that. The food of the, of the, um, of the camp, the food of the shtetl when things were at their most horrible, nobody eats that. But, you know, um, you think about, I, I learned a lot, I've learned a lot from my friends, Liz Alpert and Jeffrey Yoskowitz at Gufilteria the way that they portray the food and other young people, you know, um, the folks who own Milan um, Delhi, the way they you know, talk about the richness of technique and preparation and color and seasonal variety says that, you know, we are projecting onto these cuisines, cuisines of want, and also language, right? Yiddish. I don't want to watch it. I learn Yiddish, 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 or people who were, you know, like you were saying earlier, in immigration and migration, people wanted their kids to learn English. They wanted them to move forward and move on with their lives. If you don't look back, it's not a problem. Same thing happens in the black community. I love the way that my grandparents talked when they got agitated. Because it was, it's the sound. I still remember my grandfather. Where y'all going? You know, great and every day, gracious day, which is like, which is like, oh crap, you know, Drek, right? 
or saying, you know, um, when the more, when the sunrise, day clean. Y'all come on back here, brown, brown, day clean. Well, that's directly from Africa. Day clean is the expression for good morning. Like the day is clean. It's a clear slate. The sky is anew. The universe is in a different space. So when you lose the language, you lose those ideas about the world and your, your, your vantage point. But I say all this to say that there's a very similar vibe. And I like to rescue the, rescue the heart of the culture. Because both, you know, I take pride in diaspora. I'm tired, I, and I'm tired of people trying to make diasporans um, um, ashamed of the fact that we have survived in exile. And we've moved beyond exile. We've actually come home. We've actually, we actually have choices now, options. And that's another part of the work is just kind of rescuing the heart and soul of the people. You know, it's 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 tough. It's tough. You know, it's like whenever I talk about the the food, it's like, oh, that, oh god, yeah, Ashkenazi food is it makes you gassy. Da, 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 da. So why are you projecting onto this food your isht? And it's the same with black folks. Why are you doing that? You know, but it's like trying to, um, you know, it, it, you know, you've you've uncovered so much authenticity, right? And and stripped away in this book uh, the projections. It's 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 um, uh, you know, if we can all do that to our identities and kind of get comfortable with who we are, uh, yes. you know, we we uh, we imbue it with the the meaning that you know we've lost in some ways, right? Um, right. It, it reminds me of the, you know, you'd said, you'd said in the book, you'd, your plate is your flag and it's a way to kind of uh, get back to the sense of your roots and your traditions. Right. And uh, uh, people don't like when the food is meaningless. So if you don't, if you don't have uh, a sense of connecting to something, then uh, it's, it's unlikely to be a satisfying meal probably. Or if you, or if your if your idea of the meaning is somehow circumscribes everything that it should be about. I mean, um, you know, we, we, we kind of, we have certain foods, we have this weird relationship to a narrative. But I remember someone in, um, in Portland, remember the Jewish community, I asked them to bring the recipes to me. And this one particular woman's recipe was a gefilte fish that was, it was tricolor before tricolor gefilte fish was popular. And it had a lot of Pacific, fresh Pacific salmon in it. You know, there's that that's a bland phrase because there's a lot of Pacific salmon. There's like seven or eight major varieties. And by the way, I got the greatest thrill watching them, watching them um under underneath a salmon ladder, watching different species actually migrate. You can go there and watch them swim in the different the different types. It's amazing. But um I told her, I said, isn't this cool how like your gefilte family gefilte fish speaks to a very specific Pacific Northwest identity? And then I asked her, "Do you know where it comes from?" And then we walked her back through the through the past, and I said, "This is was the Jewish woman's way of expressing her her sense of scripture and um, and the folklore around scripture." And we talked about how gefilte fish was was out of probably out of necessity, but it was also a way of, for Jewish women to explore and explain how how the messianic era, the end of times, would be. 
because the idea was that if you serve gefilte fish, you were serving a small piece of the leviathan, the same leviathan that spat out Yonah, and that the leviathan would be hooked and caught by God Almighty at the end of time, and then all the righteous would sit in a sukkah made out of the rainbow skin, the leviathan, and everyone would eat forever, being entertained by Moshe and Miriam and David HaMelech, and that this spectacular vision was reenacted at the Shabbos table and the holiday table every single time Yefotevich was served. Well, the woman was like in a state by the time I got done telling this to this whole audience. It was like, I didn't know that was that deep. And I said, of course, that's the meaning part. And let me just say this. What makes the food Jewish? What makes the food Black? And by Black, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about the Black Atlantic in particular, the African Atlantic. Um, it's the meaning that we ascribe to it and we derive from it. There you go. Yeah, I just have to say for the record, in case my family is watching, that in, in my idea of the Messianic era, there's no gefilte fish. So I just want to let <laughs> it <everyone know. laughs> Very explicit about that. You are mean, sir. You are mean, but I... <laughs> no, I, I like a lot of things, but that's never been one of my favorites. Mm, mm. <laughs> so... Um, I'm curious to know, right? Um, a lot of uh, a lot of our congregation, uh, some of them are are stuck at home a little bit more than they'd like to be, and uh, they're on their screens a little bit more than they'd like to be, and maybe they're reading, you know, uh, certainly more than they have in the past, which is hopefully a good thing. But who are the the voices or the the culinary activists, the chefs? Who are the people who you're, you know, you you would direct us towards aside from aside from yourself? You know, who, who should we be right. at right now? Oh, wow. I should have told me about this when I would have had my list ready. <laughs> um, there's there's just so many. Yeah, yeah. Um, with, with, you know, we'll, we'll say, obviously, you know, you can't, you can't. Two or three. Yeah. Let's say two or three. Great. Um, so, Brian Yazzie, Native American chef, is continuing the, the good work that's already being done Um by um, my good friend, the sous chef, <laughs> uh, Sean Sherman. Brian is Navajo, and he is all about indigenous foodways. But he's also currently, during COVID, desperately trying to keep his community alive. They are, they are being hit so hard, um, and it's just it's, it's devastating, but he's also showing... Native American community is resilient and powerful. Um, my good friend, um, Ileana, um, my son, that she is Puerto Rican and lives in the Bay Area and is doing her own work of Puerto Rican diaspora food waste. Um, so I think it's like um, cool because she's had, she's been very public about her own struggles in the food world. You know, having getting people to recognize that, you know, she's a great cook, she's a great food writer, but you know, when you get told by gatekeepers that you don't belong or that what you have is not new or some nonsense, um, yeah, amplify. I'm amplifying these people because they do they're in a similar space, a very similar space. Um, I should you should I should put up a list on the blog. Now you've inspired me to like. To a full like forty people that I think are 
just extraordinary. Um, Selfishly, um, I'd love that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, anybody local in New York that uh, you know uh, we could we could amplify uh, since they are in our neighborhood or they're part of our you know uh, proximate community here? Um. Okay, you're putting me on the spot. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't mean it. It's it's because you know it's 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 you no know, it's no rabbi. It's just, it's the Rona thing. Yeah. A lot of us, like my friends, um, um, Omar Tate and Kurt Evans in um, Philadelphia, they've been doing doing so much good work for their community. It's been hard to really think very far out because I know New York has been hurt. That's, that's, you know, that's, uh, I think some of the motivation behind the question is, you know, especially issues of food justice right now, um, you know, I think we, we, you know, we see that there's going to be uh, a lot of room for people to do some good. And I, uh, so I think that's why I was asking somebody local, but uh, I'm glad to have these names and we'll be looking for that blog post. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be a reason to, to get some work done. Okay. Okay. And um, I'm just making sure, cause I did promise people time for questions. So I, I promise if you have a, a question you want to throw into the Q&A, put it in there and um, we'll, we'll make some room for those in the next few minutes. Uh, and, and while people do, I, I had one, one specific question from a moment in the book, uh, if it's okay. Um, uh, there's a moment where you describe uh, a trip, I think it's your father takes with your grandfather to South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, your father goes into a shop and asks for some candy and has really... Uh, um, uh, heated is, is maybe the euphemistic way to say the the, inter, uh, the exchange that he has with the with the gentleman behind the the counter who uh, yeah. uh, and in that in that exchange and maybe you could t- uh, tell tell the story for the for for the people who maybe haven't read the book yet but in that exchange at the end you say um, uh, uh, I wish there were I, I wish there really were time machines. Yeah. Don't you, but I, I'm curious because I don't remember in the book. It didn't seem like you said. So what? What, what for? What would the time machine allow I, you to? I do? wanted. I wanted. I wanted to kill the man. Okay. I will. I won't. I will. I won't mix mix words. The man was a Klansman. Yeah. Who owned a store in South Carolina? Now keep in mind, I remember my my father grew up in Washington D.C., which by the way was not the North. That's a myth. It was a segregated city that was surrounded by two segregated city states with a, with a heritage of slavery. And daddy, daddy, my father's still around. My, daddy told me that um, my grandfather put him in the car and said, you know, we're going to go back to my home place, South Carolina. And I remember my grand, my father must have been six, six, seven, something like that. And daddy told my my grandfather told my my dad that, all right, now we cross this bridge. You say, you know, over from DC into Arlington and Armored. So you say, you you say, yes, sir. Don't 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 look no white man in the eye. When they walk down the sidewalk, you get off the sidewalk. When you do this, you do that. Don't touch no white woman, not even brush past a white woman. Do everything you can to avoid. My father was being given the original talk, right? When they're driving down there, um, at some point, 
at nighttime. My this is when kids didn't ride in, in car child seats. And my grandfather literally pushed my father down to the floor of this, this car he was driving. Cause it was nighttime. And then they saw this, this, my father's remember it was a really huge bright light. And apparently um, someone was being targeted in the community and the clan were, the clan were out there burning the cross cross and they had everybody out there. So my father went into a, um, um, uh, like the gas, like the general store convenience store that was by the gas station. And he wanted some candy or something. So he said, sir, can I have some candy? And my father thought he was a, a bang on the protocols by saying, sir. And that Klansman leapt across the, the, um, the counter and he grabbed my father by the throat. And he said, um, in word, now, when you down here, you say, yes, sir. Not just, sir, you say, yes, sir. And my father started crying. And I remember my father was a Marine. My father served, served this country. And my grandfather saw, heard the noise and my grandfather ran into the store, grabbed my father out of the, the, the meats, this, this white man. And he dragged him out and just, they just ran off. I mean, he didn't even pay for the damn gas. He just ran. And I, I got, I'm not angry about it, but I'm not, I'm not a very forgiving mood about it because that man, that, that man could have killed my father and by extension killed me. And that man, you know, my father is one of the example of like human being who, despite all, a lot of faults, Never let that get to him. He used to tell me, he said, if a white man ever called you boy, tell him, tell him that at least the boy has room to grow. And I'll be real with you. Last night, last night, so help me. I was coming into this hotel and there was an older Southern white couple. <laughs> and I'm holding the door, but being very nice. And the man actually said to me the words, thanks, boy. Right? And I'm just like, wow, okay, you do that. Don't grow. I can't help you. But I wanted a time machine because I wanted to whoop that man's behind. Actually, I wanted to bring my distant cousin, Samuel L. Jackson, with me. I, we are related, by the way. And I'm just like, or bring my other cousin, Dick Cheney. Don't, don't, shh. I ain't got nothing to do with him. But at least, you know, something, you know, remember that incident with the women were hunting, you know, I'm going to say nothing. But I, I don't mean to be flipping about violence, but I do mean to, I mean, do mean to make the, the statement that, you know, what if, what if it was you and you were in um, a town in Germany and Poland and your great grandfather was having his beard snipped off by the Nazis to embarrass, humiliate him, what would you do? You know, I, it's the same feeling. And it's one of those incidents with food attached to it that I think shows for people who don't understand what BLM really means. That that's what it means. Generations of Black lives not having the same worth, value, import, or significance as other people. 
near the end of the book, you say, you know, you're, you're, I think, lifting up a, a vision of America that could be. And you say, you know, would we be better off if we embrace this complexity, talking about all the many multiple ways we are connected in, in beautiful and profoundly troubling, disturbing, terrible ways? But, and you say, you know, would we be better off if we embraced this complexity and dealt with our pain or shame? Would we finally be Americans or th- Southerners or both if we truly understood how impenetrably connected we actually are? And you ask, is it too late? And after the last few years we've had and the, the, the ugliness that we've seen, I'm curious to know, you know, do, do you think it is too late? Have we, have we missed that moment where we could... Uh, uh, take take up your vision of, of what could be? It depends on who you are. I mean, we still have people who are pressing for the return of an old guard that never successfully lived the American dream. Um, I'm very, you know what? I'm, I was more surprised and shocked to see the outpouring of cross-ethnic, cross-class, cross-orientation, cross-gender um, support for, for justice this summer. I mean, during the, 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 the weekend of the emancipation, wink, 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 you also saw a lot of people with different backgrounds on the street. I, 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 that's, the, you know, that's like in Jewish tradition how we talk about how Mashiach is going to be born to Shabbat. It's like, it's, uh, it's not the best moment, but the worst moment that shows you who you really are. And I'm hopeful. I mean, I, this project for me this, that led to the book, The Southern Discomfort Tour, et cetera, and afterward, you know, did not, you know, I know there are a lot of people in the, in the Black community who thought that everything I should say should be pure anger. And, and anger is, the, you know, like Kohelet says, there was a time for anger. But um, there's also a a time for redemption, for healing, for forgiveness when appropriate and when necessary. And also for just not being willing to to bend over backwards anymore and stand strong. And there's a time for making allies and friends and neighbors and making family. And I think we can still do it. I mean, I, I have more hope than I've ever had before. But I am, I think Stacey Abrams said it best. I'm not optimistic. I'm not pessimistic. I'm just determined. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a, sorry, I'm just sitting with that. I love, um, there, there's a question though that's come in um, from somebody who asks, uh, what advice would you give to somebody who's grappling with multiple identities? and trying to, to find their wholeness. Think, think, of it as, think of it as a toolbox. Think of it as a toolbox. Think of, it as, think of it as an opportunity to show the blessings. I mean, if, here's the deal. When we, have, when we have multiple master identities, in other words, things that people will point out and you know, make of us that such a thing as, makes us different. It's important to understand this. Your um, diversity within you is a blessing. 
And it's also an opportunity to be as strong as possible, to be as an educator. Sometimes some people, some people don't want that label. But here's the bottom line. Everybody in this country is, is multicultural. Everybody in this country is, is intersectional. Some of us more than others. You know? And um, I say the toolbox is there. The tool, sometimes I use Jewish tools to solve black problems. Sometimes I use black tools to solve Jewish problems. Sometimes it is, sometimes they're Venn diagram. They're the same, they're, you know, there's black Jewish problems. I use gay tools to solve uh, Jewish problems and man tools to solve um, non-gender binary problems. And I do all this stuff. Cause it's, you know, when people tell people, you know, there's not a cliche, it's a cliche, but it's not a cliche when you actually feel it, feel it and live it, that this, you know, the redemption is inside of you, the healing is inside you, the tools are inside you. That's what you do. Um, some of those tools have names, sarcasm, satire, irony, um, commentary, you know, if you come, Jewish commentary is called kibitzing. Gay commentary is called reading. Um, black commentary is called chilling and rapping. And when you under you weave your way through all those things and how they are survival techniques and also the fact that they all involve a certain amount of truth telling and a certain amount of humor you begin to get the list of values for your life that will help you navigate a path that many people can't let other people be basic that's my word um i'm wondering if you can tell us um uh, a little bit about your forthcoming book, Kosher Soul. Okay, very simply, Kosher Soul is like a next part of a trilogy. I'm doing a, um, the first one was about Black and Southern identity and food. This one is about Jewish and Black identity and food. The third one's going to be about gay identity and food. All low carb. Um, but the bottom line is that um, Kosher Soul is, tries to tell a little bit of each story the history of Black Jews in America and the Atlantic world, which is, is extensive. We're the most buried minority in Atlantic history. Um, I can't even begin to, to tell you how um, bewildered I am at how many points where you see these two communities, you know, in plain sight of each other. So it didn't just start in New York or some other place. It started in Europe and in Africa, and it's in the West Indies and Brazil, and it's something deep. But I'm also but I'm doing a lot of talking about food. How do I make a Jewish identity and make Jewish practice for myself in the kitchen? And other people as well. And I interviewed a, a long list of prominent um, Black Jewish writers and fig cultural figures, and I also interviewed... Um, Black Muslims and asked them how do they make food and diet work. I interviewed white Southerners who converted from Protestant Christianity to Judaism. Talked to them about food. And sort of putting all those stories together and trying to ask the question, how do people create um, these unique religious and culinary identities um, in a world that doesn't often see them? And how, do, how, does, how does Judaism shape my life? And I'm very, you know, I got to tell you, Rabbi, I'm very grateful to be, to be Jewish, um, especially this year. 
you know, I'm not no shade, no tea in anybody else's religion or path, but all I know is that our community, you know, took Pikuach Nefesh for the most part, for the most part, not all, very seriously, and used that to use that to um, make new forms of Minhag and Midrash that are fitting for today. <clears throat> I spent um, Yom Kippur um, flipping channels on, on the computer, going from service to service, shul hopping. And I loved it because, I mean, I was praying up until midnight because I'm waiting for the pe- people in California to finish, you know, but I loved it because it, it just showed me how, what, it, what, it, what an astounding people we are. We get on each other's nerves a lot, which is part of Judaism. That's actually like the 11th commandment. But we're an astounding people because we really do um, we really do have this capacity for love and expansion. And I appreciate that now. I appreciate what it means. I appreciated it on Pesach when I was, so, you know, so I had several people message me and say, I am, I am so lonely and I'm so broken. I can't see my family on Pesach. I don't know how long this is going to go for. Of course, it's gone. It's going to be going on to a year and a half. But I remember that. And I remember them saying that that, that the fact that I was throwing up pictures and, and tweeting and Instagramming made them feel less lonely. That was remarkable. And so I'm very, I'm very, I'm very pleased to be a Jew. I'm very pleased to be in a world of people that struggles rather than sits on the sidelines. That's another element of this book and my work that I think is very Jewish. I, I, I must struggle. I must wrestle. I can't just sit down and, and sit on my hands and do nothing. I got I gotta struggle. It's good, it's good, it's good to wrestle. Even if you break your hip. <laughs> Maybe especially so. Yes. Um, I, uh, I I'm cognizant of the time, and I, I don't want to um, take advantage of your uh, kindness and and uh, your your presence with us. Um, I I want to um, say uh, again that if anybody has not yet read your book, The Cooking Gene, which uh, again I don't know why you haven't yet read this book, go read this book. It's not just um, incredible history. It's not just incredible, you know, culinary history. It's not an incredible, uh, just an incredible um, image of what America could be if we leaned into uh, uh, the the values and the processes that, Michael, you lift up here. It's also, a, I will say, it is one of the, uh, you know, other than maybe Dara Horn, I don't know if you've read any of her, uh, her fiction novels, but used with Jewish imagery and symbols. Uh, I mean, I, I felt like I was, um, uh, like some of my greatest passions in life had all come together in this book that you wrote. So I, I, I really go get this book and I cannot wait for kosher soul. Um, the piece that I carry that I I continue to just think back on is you talk about it as a blueprint. I think you were talking uh, with your friend, uh, Teresa Nelson. Is that right? Yes. Uh, About how this is a blueprint. And I think, you know, 
uh, it's one of those things that uh, traditions give us with these blueprints that we can use to um, to pass on to another generation to do the work that uh, that we we aren't going to be able to continue. And uh, I mean, the, this is a blueprint, and uh, the the wisdom and Torah you share are w- blueprints for all of us as we seek to bring greater wholeness, equity, justice into this world. So I, I really could not be more thankful to have spent a little bit of my Hanukkah with you and for you and your uh, willingness to spend Hanukkah with us in our community and the wider community who's watching virtually. It's really been a, 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 a beyond a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so we uh, will look forward uh, to those of you who are with us. Uh, we hope you'll join us tomorrow for a Kabbalat Shabbat services and another opportunity to light the Hanukkah together. And I know all of us around uh, New York and the greater area are all clapping our hands. If we were, I wish we were in our sanctuary so we could really, uh, uh, you could hear us uh, cheering and applauding and, and we could spend time physically proximate. But, uh, but really, um, I thank you for a tremendous evening. Thank you. Bezrat Hashem. It will be better, better next year. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org, our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. (laughs) 